Well, uh, let me also invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. We are in the series on the Sermon on the Mount and the text that Jenna just read for us. And as we turn here, let me pray. For I have been crucified with Christ, and the life that I now live in the flesh is the life of faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For I no longer live, but Christ in me. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that your life would be manifest in my life, especially through the preaching of the word this morning because we need to hear from you. It is your word and your presence that has the power to transform. So give us that life-giving word this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name, who is our strength and our redeemer, amen. Well, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' vision for human flourishing. And we are all interested in human flourishing. I mean, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you're interested in this question. I mean, it's the question. We don't call it flourishing. We call it happiness. Uh, But it's still, happiness is just an aspect of human flourishing that we've, we've limited to happiness. So the question this morning is simply that Jesus, I think, is asking you is, do you want to flourish? Do you want to flourish? says, come, follow me and follow me on this path. But as we look at this path that Jesus sets out and this description of the new life that he is bringing and offers, we find that it is not easy, is it? I mean, those of you who were here last week realized that Jesus is calling us to something that is higher and deeper than anything we have seen before and anything especially that his first hearers had seen before. Resolve anger. Excise lust. Promote marriage. And not just for your own personal happiness, but as a social institution for the life of the world. And these are, these are high demands. John Ortberg once said, God is not concerned with your spiritual life. God is not concerned with your spiritual life. Do you know that? God is concerned with your life. And this is the stuff of everyday life. Conflict resolution, sexual desire, marriage. And this is the stuff of everyday life. And what a beautiful life it is. I mean, if everyone, think about it, if everyone would would follow Jesus' words, what a wonderful world it would be. And this is a beautiful life. And these words and this description is beautiful. It is also heart-wrenching, isn't it? Heart-wrenching when we realize the dissonance between the life that Jesus describes here in our own experience of the world and reality. And so it's very easy to walk away from Jesus' teaching here. It's very easy to walk away discouraged. But I think there's another way. And I want to try to give you that other way this morning. So if you were here last week and you walked away discouraged, you're not alone. And, uh, and I'm glad you're here. 
So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the assumptions behind this new life. We're going to look at uh, the second half of the description of this new life. And then we're going to look at the promise of this new life. So first, the assumption behind this new life. If you are going to understand what Jesus says here, then you have to realize that, that he comes with some assumptions. And if you don't take those assumptions on and you don't wear the lens of those assumptions, then you're going to read him wrongly. And here's the, here's the first assumption. The first assumption is that what Jesus is proclaiming is a new reality that is breaking in. If you go back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus begins his ministry by saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is drawing near. Jesus is talking about a kingdom that is invading this world. And you know what that means? The world is actually under the description of another kingdom. The world is actually under another dominion. It, it, the world, bruised and broken by the fall, is under the thumb of sin and Satan. And that is the world that Jesus enters into and comes to bring his kingdom. And so here's what that means. It means this. Jesus is not surprised by the brokenness in your life and the brokenness of this world. Jesus is not surprised by your disordered sexual desires. Jesus is not surprised by your, uh, by, by your, the relationships in your life that are broken and the conflict that you experience. And Jesus is not surprised by marriages and families that fall apart. He is not surprised by any of those things. And in fact, that's exactly why he brings his kingdom. He brings his kingdom because he knows those things exist. And see, what Jesus is offering us here is not a program for reform. And if you think that, then you'll never get it because you'll think, I just have to really try hard to live this life because what Jesus has given me is kind of a program for reform. He is not giving you a program for reform. People under the grip of sin and Satan don't need reform. They need rescue. Colossians 1.13, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. This is what Jesus is coming to do, the great king. He is coming to rescue you and me, to transfer us from, the dominion, from out from under and liberate us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. And so here's what this means. It means that your conflict avoidance and your lack of courage, that your disordered and unwieldy sexual desires, and that your failed marriages do not, do not disqualify you from his kingdom. In fact, they're the very reason why Jesus is bringing his kingdom in the first place. Because he sees us and he has pity on us and compassion for us. And he says, I am coming to rescue you and liberate you and transfer you out from under the thumb. The oppression that you feel. We are bruised and battered by our sin and by the devil. And Jesus comes to proclaim liberation to the captives. 
And so that's why this whole sermon starts off, chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. That's where it starts. These commands assume that, it's a, that Jesus is bringing a new reality that is breaking in, breaking into the old world. The second thing that you have to understand is that, that these commandments assume a supernatural ability. Jesus is not describing a natural life. Jesus is not describing a natural standard. Uh, I um, heard a story about a pastor, and a pastor was meeting uh, with someone who'd been attending his church, and as he's meeting with him, he's talking about like, oh, well, what's your routine like? What's your schedule like? What do you do on the weekends? And this, uh, this, this man told the pastor, well, uh, every weekend I go down to this bar, and basically I go down to this bar and I pick up another woman, and then I take her home. And the pastor's kind of sitting there struck by him saying this, and then he says like, well, what about Jesus's, or don't you consider yourself a follower of Christ? Yes. Well, what about Jesus's word in Matthew 5? And, and the man looks at the pastor and says, uh, just, you know, quite unabashedly, well, Jesus is pretty unrealistic. Now, we might think, I can't believe that guy said that. I actually agree. I think that Jesus is absolutely unrealistic. I mean, if you really consider the depth and the height of the new life to which he is calling to us to, these commandments, they will slay you. Jesus is giving us an impossible standard. An impossible standard that if you read it, you, you come out of it and you say, who can do these things? Who has done these things? It is an impossible standard. Yes. And with God, all things are possible. And that's the point. And that's why over and over and over again, we come back to this first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize that they need to be transferred from the dominion of darkness into the dominion of light. Blessed are those who realize that they don't have the resources to keep these commands. Blessed are those who say, God, I can't do this. I don't have the power to do this. And God says, I know. And that's why I'm giving you a new life. That's why I'm giving you a new power. The life and the power of my son. And there, and there we find a kingdom that is neither reached nor earned, but invades our lives and is given. I was in, um, I was in Hawaii this summer, first time to Hawaii, and Hawaii is known for pineapples, you know? But you know, pineapples actually aren't native to Hawaii. It's like they're known for like pineapples, but pineapples weren't sitting there growing on Hawaii when people came there. They, they were brought there. They're not native. In the same way, the new life that Jesus has given us is not native to us, but there's actually a difference even still. We tend to think 
that the new life that Jesus has given us, we tend to think of it like, like pineapples in Hawaii. We think that Jesus gives us like this new birth and new deposit, and therefore we can just independently now live this life. Guess what? The new life cannot grow in you. It's like trying to plant, I don't know, I don't something that doesn't grow in Hawaii, right? Some of you will know what that is. I don't, but you do. Like, it's like try, I have a banana tree in my backyard. It will not grow bananas. In Hawaii, it will. Here, it will not, right? Maybe some of you want to dispute that later. Stop, for the purposes of my illustration, just go with me here. Here's the thing, the new life that Jesus offers, it is not a native life. And it is something that we are always, always having to receive from the outside. And that's why every command that you read, every command that you read, every line in the sermon is a call to conversion. Over and over and over again. I don't have this life in me. And God says, I know, but I'm giving it to you over and over and over and over. And here's what this means. It means this. It means that every time you use your anger and you resolve that anger to establish shalom in this world, whether that's in an interpersonal relationship or in society at large, every time you do that, that is the new life breaking through in your life. And it's a miracle. It means that every time, every time you slay your inordinate desires and you redirect those desires to the kingdom, every time that happens, that is not native within you. That is the new life breaking through, and it is a miracle. And every time, every time you fight for your marriage when you don't find it fulfilling, that is the new life in you. And Jesus is breaking through. Here's what it also means. It means this. It means that all our failures, actually, it, it, and all the dissonance we find between the life that Jesus promotes, and the life that we live, every one of our failures are, fail are means and can be means through which we come to a greater experience of this new life. Because every time we find ourselves, every time we find ourselves breaking our promises, every time we find ourselves uh, captured by lust, every time we find ourselves in situations of conflict that we can't resolve, Every time we do, we are cast back to the first beatitude, to poverty of spirit, and we say, Lord, help me. And that's the place where the power comes. So every failure is a means through which we can come to a greater experience and appropriation of this new life that Jesus offers. And this also means that these this new life, this description of this new life that Jesus paints in the Sermon on the Mount was never meant to be a means of you attaining salvation. It's not a means of if I can get myself together, then God will accept me. If I can just keep this, then I can become a Christian. That is not what these are, but is an outworking of the salvation that you, 
that Jesus is given. These are his redemptive commands through which he is changing you and the world. Notice verse 1 that it says that seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And verse 2, who did he speak to? He spoke to them. See, these are not commands given in order to become a disciple. These are commands given to those who already are disciples, who recognize their poverty of spirit, and they rally around Jesus saying, we have no life in us. Teach us. Change us. Or as Sarah Groves sings, this is grace, an invitation to be beautiful. So here's what I want you to do. Before every command, as I've heard it said, before every command that you see in this sermon, every command, I want you to think, this is the life that Jesus died for me to live. This is the life, this is the new life that Jesus died so that I might live it. This is the new life that you have access to. And you have access to it in full. But the rest of your life is going to be figuring out and learning how to appropriate this life which is there for you. It's like, um, have you ever talked to people who do spear fishing? Who would want to do that? Have you ever been in a situation where you like feel like you're almost drowning? It's the worst feeling in the world. And these people like put themselves through it. But here's what they learn to do. I mean, they learn to stay underwater for like lots of minutes at a time. You know, like I can stay underwater for, I don't know, I get kind of freaked out at a splash in the face. But I mean, you know, these folks are talking about like three, four, five, six, seven, eight minutes underwater. They have access to the same oxygen. I, I have access to the same oxygen they do. What's the difference? They know how to appropriate that oxygen better than me. You have access to the whole Christ. We all do if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And God gives you the whole Christ. Everything, I'm not a part of them, not a part of this new life, not 75% of this new life, not 25%. Of the, you have the whole new life. But we, what we have to learn is how to appropriate it. How to open our hands wide to receive the gift. So those are the assumptions behind this new life. Now let's look at the description. You need to keep that in mind as we look at this description. Jesus here in this passage gives six examples of what this new life looks like. We looked at the first three last week and we're going to look at the second three this week. Uh, but I want you to note that these are just examples. This isn't saying everything about the new life. These are examples. They are vignettes. And that means that this isn't the final word or the only word on the new life. Jesus does not say everything here, and I can't say everything. Also, what Jesus is giving us is principles, and then he shows how those principles work out in certain situations. But, but he's actually not going into detail. We have to use the rest of Scripture and wisdom together to figure out what does this mean for each particular circumstance. And so here's the thing. If, if what I say today and what I said last week raises questions for you, I totally understand. I cannot actually nuance this thing 
all the way, bringing in all the scripture that has to come. And I have to know, and you have to know, and we need to think about together each unique particular circumstance to see how these things apply, right? I need to know about your marriage. I need to know about the conflict that you're experiencing, and you do too, and each other's, and then we'll figure out how this principle applies as we bring in the rest of Scripture and as a community together. So if you have questions, please come. But we do need to talk about uh, these things and give an overview of them. So last week we looked at anger, lust, and marriage, and this week we're going to look at O's, retaliation, and how to address enemies. First, O's. Verse 33, Jesus said, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool. I'm sorry, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, that is God. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, we don't think about oaths a lot in our day. It has been, though, very popular this week. Or very, uh, I was very surprised to watch like a 10-minute segment on the Colbert Report or whatever his, the Stephen Colbert show is on oaths uh, where he talked about, you know, what would a society be like where people actually took their oaths seriously? And found that to be uh, something that they thought was of great value. But O's aren't wrong in themselves. It's worth saying that. God makes O's throughout the Old Testament. People make O's. And when you make an oath, uh, it seems that what O's do is you're calling God as witness upon you and as judge upon what you say. And you're saying, if what I say is false, let God judge me. Okay? So you're calling this kind of imprecatory oath on yourself. Now, oaths are not wrong in and of themselves, but think about this. They're not ideal. Because why do we need oaths? Well, we need oaths because we live in a world of falsehood and lies, where people don't always tell the truth. I mean, let's be honest. Look at your own heart. Look at my, I mean, when I think about my own heart, I don't always tell the truth. I mean, you know, I'm driving on the road, so, you know, and I, 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 uh, I tell somebody, hey, I'm late to the meeting. I'm stuck in traffic. Well, that may be true that I'm stuck in traffic. But that's probably not the reason I'm late to the meeting. I'm probably late to the meeting because I mismanaged my time and I cared more about my time than your time. Right? It's a lie. Uh, we, we don't tell the truth often. And lies are part of our, lies are part of our society and because of that, O's are needed or O's are used in order that we might, uh, O's are used in order that we might um, kind of say, no, what I'm saying here, I'm actually saying uh, under penalty if I am shown to be false. Uh, but, but here's the thing. There's two problems with this. The first is, if we're saying you can really trust my word under oath, and you're using oaths that way, then the question about happens, like, what about speech when you're not under oath? 
it kind of diminishes common speech, you see? And the other thing about it is that in a world of falsehood, in a world of lying, people will even use O's as a way to lie. And that seems to be what Jesus is addressing here based on what he says in Matthew 23. You can read it later. Uh, but what was happening, it seems, in their day is that people would, they would say an oath, but they wouldn't say it by the name of God because they wanted to avoid uh, the name of God based on the third commandment. And so what they would say is they would say, like, I'm going to say an oath by the temple, or I'm going to say an oath by the name of the throne, or by Jerusalem. And Jesus, in verse 34, is saying, look, do you realize how ridiculous this is? Uh, God is everywhere present, and he sees your speech. And by the way, your formulaic, like whether it's the temple or the gold of the temple, that doesn't negate the fact that the speech that you're doing is always before God, and he is immediately related to all these things. But do you see what they were doing? This, this feels very ancient and foreign and like it doesn't apply to us in any way. But do you see what they're doing? They're using oaths for loopholes. And we never do that, do we? No, we don't. We call them contracts. And we use contracts for loopholes. And we're looking for loopholes or technicalities and what we said and in verbiage and that kind of thing. And Jesus said... Not so with my people. My people speak plainly, and they don't get caught up in technicalities. Verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from the evil one. See, what he is saying is, what a wonderful world it would be where we could always trust the speech of another. 100% of the time. I mean, could you imagine that world? A world with no escrows? A world with no contracts? A world where you bought, like literally bought and sold like houses and property or, or got into business arrangements and you didn't have to sign anything? Because people, you could just trust what they said? What a wonderful world that would be. Jesus said, my people are to be the type of people where those conditions are possible. And so when we take O's, maybe we have to take them. We take them as God takes them. We take them for the sake of the other. And God doesn't take an oath for himself to make sure that he's true. He takes an oath for us because we have a hard time believing in a world of lies. He does it out of love for us. So, O's, what about retaliation? Verses 38 and 39, very famous verse. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. These are very, very famous verses. They're also very misunderstood verses. Uh, when the Old Testament talks about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, what it was doing was restraining restraining the punishment to fit the crime. What it was saying is, and notice it doesn't say a head for an eye. The point was you cannot exact a punishment that is greater than the crime, but it wasn't saying you have to enact a punishment that is equal to the crime either. But in the ancient world, people were taking that and they were doing that and they were like applying it to their own 
interpersonal relationships. And so Jesus says, no, 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 I have a better way. Verse 39 in the ESV says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now that is a little confusing. Doesn't Jesus resist evil? Aren't we to resist evil and evil people? What's happening here? Is Jesus calling us to roll over? Is he calling us to be doormat? Is, is he calling us to let the evil one have their way? Aren't we supposed to fight for injustice? Part of this, I think, has to do with the fact that I think this is a really bad or translation of this text. And I usually don't do this, but here I really just disagree with it. And I'm, I'm with kind of almost 100% of the commentators in saying that as well. So it's me and the commentators versus the translation history. But I think it makes much more sense if you think about it like this. The word resist here is used uh, often in situations of specifically armed military conflict. It's armed resistance in military counter encounters. And the phrase, the one who is evil, can also be interpreted, and I think should be interpreted, by evil means. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I say to you, do not use violence or violent evil means to retaliate. Do not use violent evil and evil means to retaliate. In other words, and, and that is, by the way, how his apostles heard him. Peter, who was standing there at the time, writes in 1 Peter 3.9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. He doesn't say don't resist evil. He says don't repay evil with evil. You see? He, Peter's actually like reflecting on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here. Paul, the same way in Romans 12, verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. So the question that, that Jesus is addressing here is not about whether or not to resist evil. We do resist evil in our own lives and in the world. The question is, how do we resist evil? And he says, we do so nonviolently. We don't do so with, by means of retaliation. That's why the turning the other cheek it's actually a form of confrontation. I mean, if you get slapped on one cheek, he's saying, turn the other cheek so you face them square in the eye. You actually are standing up. You're not rolling over. But you're doing so nonviolently. Uh, we have great examples of this uh, recently. One you can think of is... Um, is Desmond Tutu and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa and all that they did there using nonviolent means to face evil. Or think of Martin Luther King in our own country who said, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to night, already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. And toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. And that is what Jesus is getting at. He's breaking the cycle. Now, in my experience, this is either applied universally or is, applied, or is ignored universally. 
it's applied universally, and this is there's a very strong pacifist tradition in uh, in the Christian Church. That pacifist tradition basically says that um, that Christians cannot ever use violence or be involved in a violent conflict, and because of that, they can't join armies or things like that. Right. I do not agree with that tradition basically because I don't think that it fits Romans 13, which says that the government has been ordained by God to carry out justice and use the sword to do so. So I do think that Christians, as they are acting, as they are acting as a direct agent of the government, may participate in things like a police force or war as they are acting as a direct agent of the government. So in that way, I am not a pacifist. And by the way, a pacifist is not the same as passivity. It just means nonviolent resistance, not violent resistance. It doesn't mean no resistance. But these, these verses, I think, are, are often applied universally, like in the pacifist tradition. But on the other hand, they mean something. And I, I see a lot of Christians who basically ignore them universally. I mean, most there are many Christians that I talk to who do believe, who do believe that you can hit back or shoot back. I am not sure how that comports with what Jesus says here. I do not believe that we can actually use violent means in retaliation. If we are not acting as a direct agent of the government, how do we deal with that? Uh, in fact, uh, there are many Christians, and I realize this is sensitive, many folks, based on their interpretation of a very modern reading of the Second Amendment, uh, believe that the Second Amendment is for more than a well-ordered militia, and they use that to justify self-defense through violent means. I just don't think the Second Amendment trumps what Jesus says for Christians in Matthew 5. And I'm not sure how to interpret it any other way. Because I believe that the way that Jesus' kingdom comes is actually through cross-bearing. It's through a Savior who didn't resist violently, but gave himself over and believed in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. And through those means, he conquered his enemies, you and me, not through violence, and brought a kingdom. And he calls us to follow him in that way. He gives four situations to illustrate it, slapping, suing, exploiting, and one taking advantage of you, begging. And the begging there specifically has to be not with giving to the poor generally, but with being taken advantage of. Because every situation here, one is actually being oppressed. One is slapped, one is sued, one is exploited, one is taken advantage of. And Jesus says, do not retaliate in like manner. Rather, follow my lead. In fact, the verbs that he says and the, the things that he's saying here uh, harken back to the suffering servant in Isaiah 50 who turns the other cheek and, and does not pursue uh, a law um, uh, and does not pursue others in court. Now, having said that, 
I want to be very clear. Our call is to cruciform love. It's to die that others might live. This can be severely misapplied, and so I want to say this. Our call is not to die so others might remain enslaved. And so what Jesus is not calling for is for you to remain in an abusive situation. Jesus is not calling for you to, uh, to, to just take it by someone who is evil. Absolutely flee an abusive situation. Absolutely confront nonviolently, but confront the situation that you're in and use all the resources available that are nonviolent to do so. Absolutely. It, it is not loving and it is not godly to suffer in order that another person might stay enslaved to their idol. We suffer in order that other people might be freed. And there is a difference. But what a wonderful world it would be. I mean, imagine this world. Imagine a world where people actually solve problems through nonviolent means and did not retaliate. Imagine, imagine a Christian community where little boys like myself weren't taught how to fight and swing a baseball bat when the bully down the street came, uh, came at you. And that was what I was taught. And nobody actually asked the question or batted eye, do you think Matthew 5 has anything to say about this? What, what, what if we actually took the cross seriously and the call to bear the cross? What a wonderful world it would be if we believed in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, and that it's actually through the martyrs and through these things that God brings and establishes his kingdom and conquers enemies through cruciform love. Which brings us to the final thing. How do we deal with our enemies? Verse 43 and 44, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, you have to realize, for Jews living under the, the boot of Roman oppression and financial oppression, it was seen as patriotic and natural to hate one's enemies. And Jesus may even be, uh, they may even have drawn fodder for this from things like the imprecatory Psalms. But Jesus is saying, look, you are not the anointed one, I am, David was. You don't pray the imprecatory psalms like personally. And what I'm calling you is to actually love your neighbor, not hate your neighbor, and to love them into life because that is what God has done. So this is how Jesus calls us to, to this life. And what a wonderful world it would be when we viewed enemies as those who are under the boot of sin and Satan themselves. And if we realize that our powers, our fight, our battle is not against flesh and blood, and we love them in order that they might be released from this oppression. Well, the third thing that I want us to look at, not just simply the assumptions and not the description, but very quickly the promise of this new life, the promise that completes the new life, Verse 48 says, you therefore shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And some people try to lessen that command by to say, well, the word is not really perfect here. It means wholeness. 
And so, um, so how does that make you feel? You shall be whole just as God is whole. Well, that makes it easy, right? No. But I want you to think about something. In the Greek, there are two ways to give a command. There's an imperatival form, do this. And there is a future form, you shall do this. And which one does he use here? He uses the future form. You shall be perfect. Which means that actually there's some, there's some, uh, there's some ambiguity here. There's some nuance. Uh, think of it like this. This is how one of my professors in seminary would, would uh, illustrate this. He says, you say to your child, uh, could you please bring your dishes to the sink? And they say, no, I'm not really interested. Or, you know, would you mind doing this? Yeah, I mind. And then you say, bring your dishes to the sink. Imperative. And you say, oh, well, uh, no, no. You will bring your dishes to the sink. And there's a sense, right, in which that is like the strongest form of the command, right? But it also is a promise. It will happen. You will be perfect and complete and whole as your heavenly Father is perfect and complete and whole. That is the promise of this new life. That one day we will see him as he is and we will be like him. Verse 45, everything is so that we might be sons of our Father who is in heaven. Our Father who doesn't leave conflict unresolved, but comes in reconciling love and takes the initiative. Our Father who honors bodies, our honors bodies so much that he sent his only begotten son to take on a body for us and for our salvation and keep a body in heaven. Our Father who, who keeps his marriage covenant to his bride, even when his bride over and over and over again breaks the covenant, he pursues her in love. Our Father who is faithful to his word and to his promise and who cannot lie. Our Father who does not return evil for evil but overcomes evil with good, our Father who loves his enemies, and even when we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And you shall be, you will be, sons of your Father in heaven. I went to PT uh, a few years ago, and I, I, when I went in, I crawled in. Uh, they were kind of like, you shouldn't be here yet. You're not ready for this. And I'm like, I need help. So like, you know, I'm excruciating. I'm yelling. I get up on the, on the um, table. And during the time, um, the, uh, the guy who was doing the PT, he showed me these videos of this other person who came in with the same problem that I did. And, and this gal who came in with the same problem, he showed me videos of her doing like Olympic lifts with weights. And I looked at him. I said, well, that's amazing. Wouldn't that be great if I could ever do that? How long ago did she come in? He was like, oh, five months. You can get there as well. You can do that if you keep this up. You can do it. This is the life that Jesus died that you might live. And you shall. And you shall. That's his promise. Amen.